Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. Hello, yes, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here with our cast from the Everyday Mindfulness Show. This week's cast includes Bridget Cook and Dr. Alexandra Solomon. And of course, you can check out our brilliant cast and learn all about them at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. This week, we're going to be talking about Dharma and letting go of the outcome. And this really got inspired from a book I was reading called From the Great Work of Your Life by Stephen Cope. And really, the theme of the book is three concepts. Find your dharma, do it full out, and let go of the outcome. Success, failure, not the concern. So what I want to start with is, Bridget, what does dharma mean to you? Like, how would you define it to someone who has never heard of it? Well, it's interesting because dharma has a, a little different connotation. If you, if you go back to its original Sanskrit and Hindu forms, it, it talks more about the cosmic order of your part of life and your nature and, and rather your duty, your duty to fulfill the measure of your creation in a certain way. As society has evolved, as Buddhism, as Hinduism, and even just as, as people in business and life and relationships have evolved, we're getting to understand this concept of dharma in a really dynamic way. It's more about not just a duty or an obligation, but about your soul's longing. It, it's like everybody has a beautiful calling. It is your soul's song and how you're going to sing it into the world and how you're going to create with it, how you do relationships with it, how you make mistakes and learn from them and how you move on and how you grow and develop. So it's it's a much more exciting concept as we as humans even evolve because it really is about that the beauty of the purpose of your life and understanding that you're not a mistake, you're not an accident, and that you really are here for something glorious. I love that idea of the soul's longing. I mean, that's such a great phraseology word, wording that you use there. It's beautiful and really strikes. And, and the book here, he's really talking about 
the concept, what you're talking about there of the soul's longing from a almost talent gift from the universe that you've been given to use, to share with the world. And so in this book, he cites some of the greatest writers of our times and artists of our times and how they would go eight hours a day because they were in that place. They were in that, that, that where their soul longed and they just belonged. Uh, and so when you talk of it from that perspective, somebody trying to figure out what is my dharma, and, and maybe Bridget will say, well, that's not really the right question. Curious, what is my dharma? How does someone discover it on that perspective? I'm going to jump in here and just say that the whole concept is so rich and so in, something so needed for us Westerners. You know, I'm in the field of, of psychology as a therapist and a faculty member and writer. You know, we act in our field as if we've sort of like discovered this amazing thing called mindfulness, you know, and now you can't, you can't throw a stone in the mental health world without there being a conference or a new book about, you know, any sort of disorder or Western struggle, eating disorders and mindfulness, addiction and mindfulness, couples therapy and mindfulness. It's sort of everywhere. And Westerners <laughs> are really excited about this idea. And I think about all of the folks around the world who are sort of smiling and nodding and like, yep, this has been sort of soul work for many, many, many generations. But I think what it opens up is such possibility to to just really, really find ways to live in rich, meaningful ways right now. I think about with parents, you know, parents are so locked into what is my kid's 20 year plan? Like, how am I going to sculpt this little human being into a success, you know, by my own imported definitions and the idea of really trusting that each of our children has their own dharma. It opens such opportunities for play and freedom and curiosity and trust, which is so desperately needed, you know, shifting from anxiety to trust. Well, and I love that. And so the question is for someone listening right now going, I don't feel like I know why I'm here. I don't feel like I know what my talent or my inner soul's drive is, what my gift is. How do they start to find that? What's the first step in that process? Ooh, I've got some juicy things to share. <laughs> so I love what Alexandra said about play, because play has a rich connotation in this, in, in, in what are, we're naturally called to love and to enjoy. So I found this in two different aspects. One is in play. What did you love to do as a kid? What did you run home from school for as soon as the bell rang? Like you could not wait to do. You could not wait to be a part of. For some people, they found themselves in nature. For others, it was to be locked in relationships and doing problem solving. For others, it was creating and drawing and painting. There's all different kinds of things because we're so varied as far as who we are and the, the kinds of ways that we create, but play has a lot to do with it. So I often will ask a client, what did you love to do as a kid? What were you naturally gifted at and what really drove you? The second thing that I would really love to pull out because my my work as a writer, as you know, I'm a New York Times bestselling author, but it it's more about the stories that I get compelled to write. And it has to do with the fact that a lot of people find their dharma, their real true life's purpose through a lot of their messes. You may have heard in the speakers forum, we often talk about that, you know, your mess can be your message. But I have found this in the heroes and sheroes journey to really be the case oftentimes. So I've had like the daughter of a serial killer and what she realized was her dharma was to be able to assist 
other people through tragedy, family members, friends, others through that particular course. And it's just fabulous. I myself had a near-death experience in my early 20s. And that was half of finding out my dharma. Because before that near-death experience, in the eyes of God, I thought that I was maybe, you know, a grain of sand and something to be thrown into the dust. After that near-death experience, I knew how exquisitely loved I was. And here's the cool thing. I knew how exquisitely loved every single other person on the planet was. And so I started working with gang kids and the daughters of serial killers and people who have been involved in cults when they're on their way out. And I've seen this beautiful pattern that when you've been in the midst of trauma or difficulties in circumstance, that that is often the opposite of it is part of your dharma, to find the joy, the experience, and as Alexandra said, the play again in what life can offer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, for many of us who do the work we do, it is because of some tragic situation that took place. You know, similarly, that's my my life mission became out of that. And yet there are people listening that, and I know because I meet these people that it sounds twisted and sick, but literally think, well, I haven't had anything tragic happen that makes my (laughs) life worthy of interest. And I don't have a childhood memory that's so playful and fun. I mean, that works for me, Bridget. What you said there, I used to come Mm -hmm. home and be alone and mimic hosting a TV talk show and be both the talent and the interviewer. (laughs) (laughs) And and I would and I would dance and do all these things that to this day I still love to do and in my work still shows true. Right. I'm on stages. I love doing the show here and interviewing. So that makes sense to me. But I know people that go I went home and I and I played my games for three hours. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I haven't had a, is there a, is there a journey they can start to take if there's, if they think mistakenly, because we all know this isn't true, that they haven't taken this journey before that concept of, I just have nothing about me that makes me of interest or of this Dharma search. How do they start that process? Do either of you have an idea for that? I like just the process of quieting down. You know, we are so externally focused right now. And, you know, we take, I think the time where we used to maybe daydream, drift off, sort of float around inside of our heads, it's so easy now just to pick up our smartphone and, you know, dive back in and read one more story, look at one more tweet, and just really get externally focused in all the noise. There's so much noise available to us. And so, one of the first little baby steps might be a really profound one, which is just quieting down and paying attention inwardly and just noticing, as Bridget's saying, like those little subtle shifts from closed to open, from low energy to high energy. Like where do you notice yourself being pulled and drawn? But we're not going to pick up on those shifts, the sort of rush of giddiness or possibility or um, joy. We can't, we're not going to notice that if we are, kind of living in this checked out floating head space, you know, either working or facing out in our phone. So I think it's the idea of finding, really valuing quietness and valuing um, daydreaming is, and not expecting something profound, right? You know, our dharma may have, may have to do with just really showing up for our intimate partner, for our children and what that you know, all of the incredible gifts that come from creating a rich, passionate, alive, 
intimate relationship and showing up for parenting and really viewing parenting as the adventure that it is. I love that you say it's really that last concept of not expecting something profound. Just be, just be present. Mm -hmm. This happened for me in a major way. And just this past year, somebody, and I've talked about this before about, they said, Hey, Mike, just step back from all that stuff you're doing. Your speaking is so busy. Just step back and give yourself quiet time. And when you do this, it's not right away when the discovery happens. And it's not happening because you're looking for a discovery. It's because suddenly you have this extra energy, maybe a month in. You start to suddenly, because your body finally gets to adjust to this quietness, to all of this. And suddenly there's this energy there and you have a pulling you feel like, oh, I want to do that. I want to not to be busy because I want to. I want to be curious about that. I want to, and suddenly you're in a space that's really cool, that's investigating, and it's based on curiosity and fascination, not success and failure. The moment you start saying, oh, how am I going to make that a success? You might want to take a pause and go, what am I doing? So let's go there with that. How do you avoid that? How do you avoid that concept of, all right, I'm going to, I'm in my Dharma. I'm in this place of peaceful or just, I'm not in my Dharma, but I'm in a place of peace and quietness. How do I make this a success? Or how do I avoid this being a waste (laughs) of time and a failure? How do we get there? That detachment. That's awesome. Alexandra, do you want to continue with that since you had talked about the quietness? Because I have a little different twist on that. Yeah, I, boy, I remember this coming up when I um, decided I was ready to write a book. You know, I really wanted to know the outcome before I got started. I really wanted to be successful. I wanted a guarantee of success before I started because it's really hard to start. It's really hard to trust. And I think one, one piece of it is just naming, just naming our human wiring that we'd like to know that we're safe before we take a risk. <laughs> That's just... That's just our human nature. You know, I was sitting with a couple this morning, you know, many, many, many years into their marriage and trying to shift patterns that have not served them. And they can see, they can see the shifts, but darn, it's hard. It's really hard to take the risk to soften, to trust, to be uncomfortable. You know, we've got all of these ways we've protected ourselves for many years. And so taking the risk to try something in a more vulnerable way is frightening. And so I think that the, the fear, the discomfort makes sense. So just kind of naming that. Okay, here you are. Hello, fear. I see you. Hello, insecurity. I see you. You're here with me. And we're breathing and we're just, we don't know. We just don't know. But we're going to lean in, take a little step forward, be uncomfortable, and just not trying to push the feeling, not trying to push the discomfort away, but just holding it, being with it. I really love that. And I just want to back up just a little bit because you have two really juicy things that you're talking about, Mike. So I love the quiet, but I would just like to say this because I I think we do need to address those who say, I haven't found it yet. And I just would like to ask the question is, who told you that you were not talented? Mm -hmm. Who told you that you don't have gifts, that you don't have insight, that you don't have vision? whose voices are in your head. And so when you go into the quiet, that might be a really important question to ask yourself. And the reason is this, I see when I work with kids, say sixth grade, seventh grade, and I ask them to write down their talents and abilities, I will tell you what, page after page after page of everything that they're exceptionally good at. And then they'll tell you easily their top three. By the time they're late teenagers in high school, that page has dwindled down to, or several pages has dwindled down to maybe a page if we're lucky. And by the time they're an adult, 
they think they may have only one or two talents and abilities, and it's simply not true. So when you have that space of quiet to get into the, you know, I have other voices in my head, not just the distractions of Facebook, as Alexandra was saying, and tweeting and, and these things, because those are very real. But we also have the distractions of what other people have conditioned us to believe about ourselves. So we often live in a box of beliefs. And when you have that time to go into the space of quiet, Mike, I love what you said about the curiosity that draws you, that compels you, that allows you to take a risk into an area of the mysterious unknown where you go, wow, I've never gone in this direction, but there's something really delicious about this to me. It feels really good. It feels light. And that process of discovery is really powerful. And I think you're both right in the fact that if we don't quiet ourselves enough, that the call can go by us on a day-to-day basis and we don't listen until we take that time. And some people, it might happen with an illness, a breakup of a relationship, other things. But when you do it deliberately, ooh, really wonderful things can happen. Well, and I love the idea, what you said there, of you know furthering on that being curious, but also being patient in the curiosity. Because mm-hmm. sometimes what happens is this show is an example. This show is what came from that process for me is that, that I knew I wanted to play in this field of discussion and conversation, but the can't started showing up. So if you had two things going on, you had the, oh, jump in and do it right now. And then you had the, but, 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 right? So you had both <laughs> happening. Both were not good as far as I shouldn't say good or bad, right? That's judgmental. Both were not helpful to the process in many ways. And that is that if I had jumped in right away, I might have very easily gotten frustrated because I really didn't know how I wanted to explore this the way I wanted to explore this. And so that could have gotten frustrating and I could have just stopped. If I listened to the, but this, but that, but I, you know, I don't want to have to have just a one-on-one. I want this to be a conversation. So that's going to be a nightmare of organizing people and, and doing it. I would have never done it either. It was a matter of sitting back and going, let's just sit on it. Let's just sit and see what comes to my mind and where this is going to head. And one night it popped in my mind about what if we just throw it out to this group of people that we really think are awesome individuals for having these conversations who are comfortable in this space, enjoy having these. And suddenly we're at the show idea. So I think that's really important that don't rush just because the idea is there, like sit on it. What does it really feel like? Because for personalities like mine, initial excitement alone can be so high that you feel like this is always the thing to do without pausing. And that's That's dangerous because we're implementers. We're like, boom, now. Uh, And so taking that breath and letting that happen. And then the second side of what I thought you said, Bridget, that was so important, goes back to you, Alexandra, because your book, Loving Bravely, you talk about if you had a loving parent trying to talk to you right now, what would they say to you at this moment? And I thought that goes right back to what you were saying, Bridget, about we're so harsh on ourselves what would somebody say to us, the TV show This Is Us has been a huge hit in six, 2016, 2017. And there's a scene in there uh, where a parent would put his hands on his child's face and look him in the eye and say, it's going to be okay. And you think at that moment, and this child learned that, that gift, that skill. And you think, what would somebody be saying to you at that moment if they put their hands on your face and said, here's who you are to the world? what would be the rest of that sentence? I think can be really powerful. I was thinking just as you were saying that, I was thinking about how how this is a deeply 
internal process. And for me, it always has been a deeply relational process as well. You know, I love when I have opportunities to listen my friends into understanding and vice versa. When my friends give me space to listen myself into a deeper kind of knowing that the, the power that comes from that relational space where we are connected, but my only job is to bear witness to you, not to tell you it's going to be, you know, it's going to be this way, or it's going to be that way, and not to tell you you should or you shouldn't, and not to give you advice, but just to listen, listen to you as you listen to you. And so I think there's got to be space, at least for me, there always has been space for the introspective piece. And then always for me, I've got to turn to some trusted tribe member who can sit with me in confusion, in not knowing and bear witness. So there's, it also to me has always been the process of creation, the process of transition. I've always found great comfort and strength in it being a relational process as well. I think that's brilliant. I know for me that when I talk things out, they make a lot more sense than than the than my brain to itself to in other words i think they make sense to my brain to myself but when i say it out loud there's much more discovery about whoa mm. did i mean that or did i say that and i think what's what's brilliant about what you said is having that someone you can say that to without judgment that mm-hmm. that is going to be fully mm-hmm. present for you and that doesn't mean it has to be this your spouse or your your life partner sometimes people get stuck in that well they're not that role for me uh-huh. that's okay it can be i mean i know in my mind right away who that person is i'm going to call because that role such we're such a great fit for each other that way for that role and i think it's invaluable to think about who is that person for me not the one who's going to guide me that's a different conversation there mm-hmm. and so cuz you walked me right into what i was going to discuss part of the book he says it's better to fail at your own dharma than living someone else's Mm -hmm. and this fits in right here the danger of you do need to see am i asking the right person to have this conversation with me because otherwise somebody's going to drive your dharma there's a lot of people that would be happy to tell you where they think your dharma is and how you should get there it's so true there's so many people that would be willing to tell you (laughs) which way to go what Mm -hmm. areas of life to tackle what success means what failure means you know, I love Alexandra in, in being able to say your success could be right there with your passionate partner and with this incredible relationship that you have with your children. And there are many in the world that would disagree and say, oh, but that's not the definition of success. Well, what we get to determine when we're getting in touch with our own dharma is what is our definition of success? Put away what the world is saying. Put away what, you know, our our sister that's a medical doctor and our brother that's, you know, a scientist and someone else that's an engineer and someone that's a stay-at-home mom. And we simply say, or stay-at-home dad, we simply say, what is the measure of success for me? And that quote that you, that you mentioned from this particular author, they, it had me thinking for days. Because mm-hmm. I, I facilitate a ropes course up in the mountains, and we have one called Lifeline. And it's about, you know, hanging on to your own lifeline all the way through to the end of your journey. And some people will let go of their lifeline and get on to someone else's and get absolutely lost. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because I see that behavior. It shows up in their lives as well, where their own lifeline is not 
as important as what they think is going on with someone else or someone else's definition of success. When you fail at your own dharma, you are succeeding more than if you succeed at someone else's lifeline. I mean, I, I can't even express how exquisite to hear that spoken of in such a, a great way because you're it, it's like we talked about the soul's longing you you have this playground with which to to sing your song and to do what it is that that for some reason you decided you came here to do and it's the discovery the curiosity you know sometimes we think there is this commandment you must do this right in your lifetime mm -hmm. or these other people's versions of success but the curiosity the power of passion and play and that pulling mike that you mentioned i think it just cannot be discounted and and too often it is i i run to so many people that are like very miserable in their lives their mm -hmm. jobs and their relationships and, and the question there, there's an interesting one for us to have, which is, is success even the right word? In other words, I, I wonder if success, if we should ever even use it. So instead, I wonder for somebody, in everybody's different journey, but if I say, is that the right version of success for me? It puts me back on success failure path versus mm -hmm. is that freedom for me? And mm -hmm. that would mean freedom for my soul to follow its longing. Is this my path to freedom? That's a very different, there's no negative to that. There's no non-free, right? You don't, you don't want to think, uh, I don't have freedom. I have, I'm imprisoned. Uh, and so is this my soul's f path to freedom? Am I, it's a different question because when we think of success, I think it does stir up the money, the expectations, uh, keeping up with the Joneses, cliches, all of that versus letting all of it go and just go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Am I in the right space? I really hear you about about substituting success for freedom because the other thing about using the term success is it it's quite a linear term and and it puts it gets us on a path of future tripping you know the idea of I'm going to declare myself a success my book a success my kids a success my business a success once I get to point X and we know we know that whenever we we dangle the idea of peace out there slightly ahead of us it ends up being a, a road to nowhere. And so I love the idea of freedom because it's, it's much more present focused and it, and it reminds us that it all goes round and round and round. There's not an end point. Yes, exactly. And I agree. And it, it puts us on a path of the here and the now versus the outcome, which is the end, which is always so important. This comes up for me a lot when I am working with couples. You know, couples start therapy oftentimes with the question, um, is this marriage going to continue or end? And they want to know what the outcome is before the journey begins. And my goodness, like that makes so much sense. I get it. It's really hard to put ourselves fully into something um, before we know what's going to happen next. But I think it goes back to that just sort of naming the discomfort and staying present with the discomfort of sort of showing up with our fullest selves, um, with the amount that we can see right now and trusting and just um, trusting the learning that whatever, you know, wherever the next steps take us, there is learning. And that is certainly easier said than done, which I guess is why we call it a practice, right? Practicing again and again of coming back to don't know, don't know. I love it. And in sports, this is so true. When I used to coach, 
the goal for many is the end of the season to win the title, whatever that is, a conference title, a state championship, a national title. But there's no way every practice of 70, 100, whatever practices you're going to have to always be triggered in on the end goal. And you don't even know if you you don't even have control over that, ironically, in most sports. You don't have full control over that because things happen. Injuries, other things happen. Uh, talent levels, all things happen. But you got control over today's workout. You've got mm-hmm. control of how hard you work at this moment. And so it's that daily journey. And we always say, you know, we we were grateful. We won a state title. But it was the journey that you remember back on. It's not the day you hold the trophy. It's actually, oh my gosh, remember that memory from the from the journey or that memory from the journey. And that's what made the championship so special was the moments in the journey along the way. Well, I want to thank both of you because it's been an uh, awesome conversation uh, and what are books that you have found or resources that either of you have found that you really enjoy take, helping this journey of either finding the Dharma or letting go of the outcome or both? For me, obviously, it was Stephen Cope's The Great Work of Your Life. That's what inspired this discussion. What about the two of you? I was just going to mention Thomas More's Soulmates book from, I don't know, 1990, maybe early 90s, mid-90s. Really beautiful book about just in relationships, remembering and honoring the soul of a relationship. And I love the book by Gay Hendricks called The Big Leap. And he talks about really this quantum leap that you make into the area of your genius. And I think when when you've had the ability to discover that joy in the journey and you recognize that sometimes it's going to take risks and you're going to enjoy the mystery of it, that you start to celebrate living in that zone of genius and having greater and greater periods of happiness. So I, I highly recommend that book. Well, Thank you both, Bridget and Alexandra, for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Mike. That was really fun. Well, absolutely. And for everyone listening right right now, remember, you can check out our brilliant cast and learn all about them, link to them, everything, and get special little freebie downloads. Many of them have contributed at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. That's everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Until next time, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com and check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.